Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to The Philosophy of Sex. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Back in March, we hosted our first live event with Australia's leading architecture commission, M Pavilion. This week, we're releasing the recording with you all. This conversation explores how design impacts our most intimate moments and how technology can be designed as a catalyst for connection. To help investigate, I've invited three panellists, RMIT professor and sex toy designer Judith Glover, founder of the sexual wellness brand Normal, Lucy Wark, and author and sex tech researcher Jenny Kennedy. This panel explores questions such as how should we design technologies related to human sexuality and intimacy, which sexual dilemmas can be solved using technology and which can't, and why do technological solutions so often feel like a band-aid for more profound issues of connection and intimacy. Please enjoy this panel discussion brought to you by M Pavilion. Before we get started with the conversation, just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're on today, the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, and acknowledging elders past, present and emerging. And we also wanted to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land for anyone listening to this recording, wherever they are at a later stage. Um, also wanted to acknowledge Allzone, the architects of the beautiful pavilion that we are sitting under today from Bangkok. Uh, and just to say thank you to M Pavilion for allowing us to have this conversation here today. Um, I am Caroline Moreau-Hammond. I am the host and creator of the Philosophy of Sex podcast and the founder and director of Becoming, which is an online sex toy retailer. So today we're going to be talking about sex and technology, which I'm sure most of you already hopefully knew before you sat down. If you didn't, welcome. Um, and we're really going to be exploring the intersection between sex, technology and design. Obviously, this is a pretty broad topic that you could dive into in any number of ways. Um, so we have a very esteemed panel of guests with us today. So to my left, we have uh, Dr. Judith Glover, who is a professor and researcher at RMIT. She is not a professor yet, <laughs> a researcher. Uh, and Judith is one of the few women uh, who has applied industrial design concepts to uh, the sexual wellness space for, for a long time now. The only person in the world, I believe, with a PhD in sex toy design. Um, so we're in very... 
No, it's very cool, I think, actually. <laughs> uh, we also have Lucy Wark, who is the founder of the sexual wellness brand Normal, uh, and they were founded back in 2021, producing a range of sex toys and also um, sex education materials. And we have Jenny Kennedy, who is a researcher of AI and smart technologies at RMIT as well, so same university as Judith Glover, author of the book Smart Wife, uh, and she researches uh, techno-feminist approaches to uh, smart technologies, particularly in homes. So I'm sure she will illuminate what all of that means in, uh, in not too long. So I wanted to begin by sort of unpacking the impact that technology has had on sex. Obviously, in the last 100 years, there's been a pretty enormous proliferation of different technologies that have changed the way we interact with sex, the pill, dating apps, porn, all of these kinds of things. Um, and I thought, Judith, we could start by talking about your experience here, having been in the industry for the longest of everyone on this panel, um, about the different sort of changes that you've observed and, and how you think technology has impacted the way that we, we interact with sex and our sexual behaviours. Um, so actually, uh, I looked at this in my PhD because I, um, um, I did a dive from Victorianism through to raunch culture. So, and I was looking at the difference between design culture and then porn culture and what that is. So the porn industry will always say, oh, we always uptake new technologies as though they're, they're innovative. Um, and, you know, one of the first media technologies they uptook was stag films in the, in the 20s and then that goes through a series of different types of technologies, print media and then into VHS and everybody knows the VHS beta story and then it's now, you know, AI and the internet and Pornhub and all of that sort of stuff. But the stories and the tropes never change. Well, they don't change much. There is around the mainstream porn industry, there is, you know, some really interesting kind of people doing their own things and feminist porn and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but there's still, it's sort of still stuck in these same, same stories, which, you know, the hierarchy is the white male at the top and, you know, everybody, everybody underneath. Um, so they would like to say that they're this uptaker of... So, so I think what I'm trying to say there is technology is one thing, but technology doesn't drive everything. So uh, ideas drive things and social change and, um, and culture. So feminism was a huge, was a huge change for, for everything. Women demanded, you know, the right to have their own sexual pleasure. The sex toy industry kind of missed feminism, you know, sort of as you, as you would know, the reason why you're starting a company in 2021 and you're going, why hasn't anybody done this for so, for so long? You know, so... Um, and that's because the, their industry is very sort of uh, male-dominated. It's a, it's a ma masculine industry. So, and we're in the... If you look at the car industry at the same time, once you get to the 70s and 80s, they start asking for women engineers and women designers and they want women in there because they want to know what women want because they realise that women are these big consumers of cars. So, but that didn't happen with the, with the adult industry. And so there is that opportunity for people outside the adult, adult industry, like when I started my business and for Lucy to sort of have really kind of alternative views and alternative products. And Jenny, maybe you can speak to this. What are some of the sort of technologies that have developed, you know, over the last few decades that have sort of had a fairly significant impact, you would say, on people's sexual behaviour and, and sexualities? 
I guess before I start there, just speaking to something that Judith just mentioned in terms of the way in which each iteration of technology tends to bring about same kinds of tropes and concerns. And I'm new into researching the sex tech industry. Um, I've come more from understanding intimate spaces in terms of mundane domestic household life and, and also understanding the way more in which technologies mediate our relations between one another. And so the way my research has evolved um, has been that it's become less about how the technologies mediate our relations between one another and more a focus on how we relate to the technology itself. And that's probably where I'm seeing, like, in terms of sex technologies going is... Um, how in my research kind of I, I didn't expect to be studying sex robots they kind of came at me and I couldn't ignore them they found me they found me and I can't leave them now um, but I was studying technologies in the home and people and voice assistants and people were talking about the ways in which they were developing not it was mediating not just their relationship with one another but it was mediating they were, they were creating a relationship with the technology itself and people were talking about in their households as these polyamorous setups in terms of there were multiple partners within the household and there were new dynamics. And that, for me, is the most fascinating aspect of this. And, Lucy, would you have anything to add in terms of how technology has changed and developed? I know you're sitting a lot on the, the newer end of the, the spectrum. Yeah, we're probably, as you can tell from the launching two years ago thing, slightly newer. Um, but I think the beneficiaries of... Um, um, a really long and um, often hidden or understated legacy of particularly like feminists um, and the queer community um, sort of involving themselves in the um, space of sex toys and all of the physical products that accompany sex. Like an absolutely great book, if you ever want to read it on that topic, is called Vibrate a Nation that traces the evolution of like um, the good vibrations model in like San Francisco in the 70s, which was reinventing the physical sex store from the like, you know, brown paper bag underneath the counter, like open overcoat, like slightly creepy dude behind the counter um, vibe to something that was designed around the needs of women and people with vulvas um, and much more focused on education and very much like a hybrid of commercial and like social mission um, sort of paradigms in the way that that worked. And that has um, profoundly shaped, I think, like the journeys of lots of people who've come into the space as entrepreneurs as well. Um, but yeah, I think just to speak, you know, broadly to um, how has technology um, shaped the way that we experience sexuality. Um, one of the things that um, I think there, like we've spent probably about the last decade in this really interesting period of um, a space of sexual wellness companies um, opening up, um, which are like often led by people with vulvas, female identifying people, um, queer and LGBTQ plus identifying people. Um, who are bringing a different aesthetic and a different um, sensibility to the way that they design products, the way that they market those products, the way that every part of that experience is done. Like, it's shame-free, it's inclusive, um, doesn't have to look like a massive, like, wobbling 
phallic, you know, thing. Like the, the, the old philosophy in designing sex toys was like, make it look like a penis and then make it pink because they'll like it. Um, and <laughs> we've moved a very long way from that to sort of more beautiful, um, everyday shame-free household objects. Um, and so I think like that wave has been profoundly enabled by the growth of um, like the commoditization of lots of the tools of e-commerce. So making it very easy to um, design and source and manufacture products and to sell them on the internet. But it's also been enabled by a bunch of really interesting like cultural technological trends. So things like um, the rise of social media and the way that that allows people to find community beyond their geography or beyond their immediate sort of circle of friends, like the Me Too movement, actually making a lot of these discussions um, legitimate topics for the public sphere and things that were not like, I think that has underpinned a lot of, for example, our ability to do things like selling David Jones, like the fact that, you know, they have sort of seen that this is a topic that belongs in the public sphere. Um, uh, I think also even the, like subtle things like the rise of streaming platforms. So like where once upon a time, the stories you're exposed to about sex are all like broadcast television, you know, like very aimed at like the square middle of the road, like family demographic, that the ability to reach audiences all over the world and find audience for a much more diverse range of stories has actually, I think, like allowed um, a lot more like people to connect with and see different versions of their own sexuality enacted in culture. And that's been pretty powerful as well. So there's a lot going on. <laughs> no, it's a good good summation of how things have um, So I unfolded. think the internet is probably the answer to that question mm. in, the la- in, the the internet. Last, yeah. in the last 30 years. <laughs> and, that, and then that, yeah. and exactly, exactly as you're saying, there, w- there was a book uh, by a theorist called Jane Jaffa back in the late 90s and she was sort of saying, well, what's going to happen to women domestically when the internet is available to them. And what happened was women were able to sit in their homes and consume sex toys once that started to get going. And it's taken 20 years because mm. I started Golf Out in oh, 2006 or something, um, just before social media. It was just starting to happen. And, uh, yeah, so that, that a lot has changed in that 15-year period and it is about being able to find your tribe from the comfort of your office yeah. <laughs> in one part of the world to a bunch of somebody's bedroom in another part of the world. And I think that's really freed um, everybody up to just sort of, you don't have to go into an atypical sex shop anymore. And I think as well, like, I know you've got other questions to get onto, but um, just to kind of jump on that quickly, like, um, I think there are still really interesting um, problems and challenges thrown up by the way that the internet currently works when it comes to um, sex. Like, obviously, like, pornography can be a real double-edged sword. Um, Like, you know, increasingly young people like learn sex from pornography and um, developing a sense of literacy around what you're watching and the fact that it's entertainment, not education or instruction manuals is like very important. Um, Or even the fact that like, you know, for example, for brands like ours, like um, we're basically like not able to advertise on social media. Like we have enormous organic growth, but we can't run paid advertisements, which is a huge dampener on the growth of the space and, you know, the ability to um, like connect people with this type of technology as well. Yeah, I think it's that's an important point around who's actually controlling the way these technologies can can develop and proliferate. And obviously, Jenny, that's something that you've looked at to a certain extent. Obviously, more in the context of the the smart home technologies. But could you could you speak to what you found in your research around that a little bit? I mean, basically, what we're looking at and what we're most concerned about is who gets to be at the table designing these kinds of products and looking at the tech industry broadly it's a very limited slim 
mix of experiences that are being drawn upon in terms of designing devices and that is also still majoritively the case in the tech in the sex tech industry although the sex tech industry i think does show um, more opportunity than other sectors in in technology but there's there's a diverse range of users and potential users and those perspectives need to be considered in the designs of technologies. And when you're looking at, as I've been looking more specifically at the design of sex robots, they are informed by a very heteronormative um, idea of who engages in sex and what sex involves and what body parts are required to provide pleasure versus what body parts are designed to be provided pleasure for. So um, that's, yeah, it, and that's basically around who gets to design them and who gets the funds and what you're talking about as well in terms of there are so many institutional and infrastructure um, factors at play in terms of who gets funding, who, um, like what kinds of industries and businesses people can get a, a business loan for or open a bank account for or insurance and insurance like those are all really important considerations in considering how we can de develop a wider array of sex technologies as I'm sure you are dealing oh, with we're, on a daily we're very basis. familiar with this one I think like um and I I would also say like you know in defense of for example like lots of the people who do startup financing in Australia like like my experiences have been broadly like very good. Like I, I've walked into a lot of rooms and been like, you are not the person who I expected to be able to engage with this in a way that's like respectful and curious and treat this as a space like any other um, and have been like really like refreshed and impressed. And I think like a lot of, a lot of progress has been made in a short time on that front. But you also do get the conversations. Like I had one where like um, an investor um, basically like pitched me a dating app um, that he wanted to make in the middle of me pitching him. Um, and then the premise of the dating app was that the men have to um, all be 10 years older and uh, all have to pay for dinner. And I was like, and he was like, do you reckon anyone in the femtech space wants to build that? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so you do still get those ones where you're like, I wouldn't get this if I was pitching you financial tech. <laughs> but yeah. There, there is a lack of in the in the big end of the big end of town in the sex toy industry. The really big companies that make make a lot of money. There is a real reluctance to to engage with research, uh, researchers, designers. You know, so it's got to come through the startups who don't have the resources necessarily till they get till they get going. So maybe in you know maybe if you, when your company becomes successful um, and it becomes bigger, maybe in ten years time. Things will progress, but just to give you a story, I went to—I was—I was on a research trip in Germany. I went up to a, uh, a big, uh, one of the big companies um, in Germany. Won't tell you who it is. You could probably figure it out if you know anything about the sex toy industry. Um, and I went out to lunch with the owner, and you know, I was kind of like, "Come on, you know, let's do some research." And he's like, "What topics?" And I'm like, "Oh, aging, disability." He's like, "Oh, I heard it all before." You know, and I'm like, but why haven't you done anything? You know, so, and then, so they didn't, so they make, I, I worked out they probably make about 100 million euro a year or something like that. You know, I'm like, what do you want to buy another soccer club? Like, you know, like, like there's so much within that. He won't be interested in that. 
So the only project that he was interested in was what happens in a long-term relationship? How do you keep that relationship invigorated? And again, I was like, that's your problem. That's your problem. That's what you want to know. You've been with your wife 30 years and now you want to, you know, you want to know how to deal with that. Is that the only problem you have? And it was the only problem that he wanted to, you know, so it was all personalised. Um, and, you know, sort of, and then he was like, oh, I'm talking to this professor in blah, blah, in Berlin. And, and again, it was a dude and it was an old dude. And I'm just like, why don't you just kind of speak to some really smart, smart women? I think it's also yeah. the interesting thing about that to me is like, that is so short-sighted. Like from a, from a you know, social impact aside, from a business perspective, that is so fucking dumb. He just, like, seemed, <laughs> he just seemed really bored with life, unfortunately. Yeah. I, felt, I felt really sorry for him as rich as he was because yeah. I thought you could have so much impact in the world. So then I came home and I was doing a little project with a company that's now called, called Bumpin'. And they're about to release, it's taken us seven years, but they're about to release a really unique product on the market. The initial question was, how do you help somebody masturbate independently that cannot use their hands because they were like disability and I was like mm, it's a bit broad but let's break it down and so we did a bunch of we did a bit of a scoping study and then we're like the problem is if you can't use your hands very well or your arms very well how do you masturbate right without needing help from somebody and the idea that and that that came from um sex little sex and disability conference that we had up in Darabin one year and um you know one of the girls in a wheelchair came up who had cerebral palsy and she was just like, I can't masturbate, can you help me? And I was like, what do you mean you can't masturbate? Like, bloody hell, that's a, that's a human right. You know, so um, finally that project started with, with them, with, with uh, Bumpin', they were called Handy, with Heather and Andrew. Um, that started with like $13,000. Now she's gone on to seven years later, get half a million dollars worth of investment and get that onto the market and get Love Honey to come in and help sponsor the manufacturing and all that sort of stuff. That's a completely unique product that potentially will help millions of people with disability have a little bit more agency in what they, in what they do. So, and what did the process look like when you were actually doing that? that research piece to work out what direction you pretty were going to go some pretty, Yeah, pretty funny stories. Uh, me making prototypes rolling around on the floor with my co-worker uh, with the camera going, oh, God, what I do for you. I mean, literally like a pool noodle with towels on the end and a vibrator strapped in the middle <laughs> rolling around on the floor going, oh, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Like um, with my clothes on. In the middle of COVID, in the middle of COVID, like trying to, you know, the whole world had to flip as we know. Uh, and designers are used to getting on a plane, getting together, having a meeting, drawing, talking, looking things up, talking, you know, that sort of stuff. And then Heather was like, come on, we need to progress the prototypes. And uh, so we had to learn to design, do research remotely, um, which was good. So, and the students had to do it too. So we were like, well, if we're doing it, the students are doing it, we all have to do it, you know. So um, it was because I would have loved Heather to have had a bucket of money right in the beginning but she sort of, she's so tenacious, you know, like, and just dedicated um, and just each step and getting it into a sort of a disability accelerator and getting a little bit more and then being able to hook up with a great uh, product design consultancy up in Sydney. And they did a fantastic job on it. Um, and then so my role just became what were the core, what were the core elements of the initial research and focus groups and was that translated into the final product? Um, and I stood back and the product designers did their work and they've done a beautiful job on it. So, yeah, I hope can it's I successful. Just, yeah, can I ask, what is the balance between, like, framing 
this kind of business in terms of sexual well-being versus sex technologies like is that something that you like it sounds like in terms of Heather's project that's I'm technology agnostic because I'm an industrial designer yeah. so I'm technology agnostic so I'm like if you make it out of ceramic dildo and it works like if you make it out of ceramic it's fine you can put a vibrator in if that's what you really want it's more about defining what's the problem and who are using it and then what's the best kind of technological mix uh, in that. So I'm a bit technology. I don't sort of see it as, as sex tech. I, I probably see it more as sexual wellness. I like to see it more as sexual wellness. And going back to those points you made about literal sex robots versus products uh, in that sexual wellness space, that was becoming evident about a decade ago that the, the market was sort of splitting in that way and there is an end of the sort of the male market that loves a literal interpretation of genitalia loves, you know, body parts and, you know, I think that's just the way that some people's brains work, you know, that they just get turned on by a thing, you know. And But most women from the research that I did wanted, uh, wanted products that fitted the ecosystem of the products they had. So they're like, there were a lot of comments like, why doesn't Apple make vibrators? <laughs> you know, um, all we want is for Apple to make decent <laughs> vibrators. And I'm like, yeah, why are they working on a car? Like, bloody hell. Because uh. of the masculine culture of the tech industry. <laughs> mm. So there's yeah. layers and circles. And I wonder how that know. intersects with like seeking out grant funding from disability, disability grants rather than sex tech startup grants. Disability is hard area because there is a lot of abuse in the disability sector and that has to be recognised. Um, and uh, some researchers you talk to are just like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to have anything to do with it because it's too much abuse. I think, um, I think we need to... I think we need to do a lot of um, co-design in that space in terms of bringing in all the stakeholders. Um, we have a problem with ethics. Not, well, in Australia, we have very stringent ethics... Um, and in our research, in our research projects, so um, uh, sometimes, and it happens in all my projects. Sometimes allowing the voices of the people you're doing the project on, if they're in a like a disability sector or they're in a, um, a refugee sector or something like that, we can't get the ethics applications through. It's just a minefield, and I find it it infantilizes people. Aged care ageing, disability, you're not allowing people to have voices. So it's really frustrating and I think the ethics is just the bar's too high, particularly in the design area where you're coming with a positive intent. You're not experimenting on somebody. You know, you're not giving them drugs or whatever. You're like, yeah, and they're coming with their people in that sector, like, say, Heather and Andrew who did the Bumpin' Project. You know, Andrew's an advocate. He's fully got cerebral palsy. He's he's an advocate. Like, you get on his website, he's, he's a sexual... So funny. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. Like, go watch his video, his trailer for Bumpin'. It's fucking great. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think there's a... I think, look, if you just wanted to make it simple and go, the extreme of the male end and the extreme of the female end, the extreme of the male end is the sex robot, so literal interpretation of genitalia. And then the extreme... And then the, the female end is the, the, the where it's... The genitalia has been taken out and it's beautiful product design and it is about sexual wellness and education and it's that building on that stuff you were talking about in Lynn Camilla's book, Vibrator Nation, that, that fantastic lineage of where it really started in the 70s. Yeah, so, so with that, Jenny, obviously you've looked a lot at sort of the, the ethical ramifications of how sort of 
certain technologies are, are developed. If you were giving advice to someone developing a technology, <laughs> putting you on the spot here, but what, what sort of advice would you give them around the, the thinking that goes into that? I think it just relates to what I said, like the more perspectives and experiences, the better. The wider range of experiences you can have in that design process, the better that product is going to be. And the kind, I guess the kinds of technologies that I've been thinking about have been, have been like literal representations of genitalia, but also it's been more around the humanization and personalization of the devices because I've been I've come into sex tech more from a voice assistant perspective um, and that's in a whole other element of design in terms of designing human-like personalities and interactions into devices that then also incorporate humanistic elements too and how would you kind of could you describe some of these smart technologies for people and sort of the, the feminized nature of them just to give context to, to why you think having that, that broad range of perspectives is, is really important? Yeah, sure. So I guess to the, they're, they're related. So you've got, you've got the sex robot that has um, some form of mechanized automation, um, whether it's facial expressions, sounds, um, the heat of you know the temperature of the silicon skin the kind of rep replication of breathing or other kind of body functions um, but then alongside that you've got ai and you have got a like a chatbot basically um, that has got a particular type, like an, an initially coded personality. So I first, when I first became interested in sex robots, they came with pre-programmed personalities and they came with delightful names such as Frigid Frida or Wet Wendy. Um, so, you know, they kind of already kind of indicating what kinds of variety you might expect and where perhaps the inspiration for these characters came from. Uh, currently, we have, you know, it, it has advanced where users are able to program their own AI personalities, either as a chatbot that's available on their smartphone or the personality of their sex robot, which, you know, is still in its infancy in terms of market penetration, in terms of, like, who actually has access to a sex robot. They're expensive. Um, they're also really difficult and heavy to manoeuvre, um, which is another element that makes them impractical for certain users, because you have to be able to lift something that is at least 40-plus kilos and manoeuvre them, and they're actually quite delicate and expensive. Um, but a chat bot you can have on your smartphone, and they're readily accessible. Uh, and from them, people are able to actually then start to personalise them, both in terms of programme settings, but also through their ongoing, the AI's learning as they interact with it in terms of what they want and, and is that to. a conversation? Like you'd have a, you'd yes. doing a, having yes. a sexy conversation, yes. like a phone, like the old school ring up for phone sex, but it's a yeah, chatbot. And that, so that, but so then you've got the sleeve on your penis and that's the full experience. Yeah, yeah basically. Easy. So there's, I don't know if you've heard of Replica. Um, so Replica, um, a sexualized chat AI, um, recently was in the press because there were some issues around um, accessibility in terms of the age of consent 
And so they immediately pulled the, um, the affordances of this chat. Um, this chatbot so it was able to send like um set it was able you were able to sext with it uh but then suddenly the functionality was defunct so people who had spent a very long time basically personalizing their chatbot suddenly found they were personality like their personality was gone um, any kind of like all that history of interaction. And I think this is the interesting such thing. such an interesting about, ethical it's such, and Yeah, like the ethics is so interesting in terms yeah. of who is the relationship with? Is it re with the, the like, and who owns that company. interaction? It's with the company. It's, and it having can a be relationship with the company. Time. Yeah. So yeah. people have been ghosted by, by their chatbots. <laughs> And it's 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 catastrophic for them. Are there any um, do they ring fence any conversations like you know in terms of if you want to get a bit you know violent with your chatbot or you know like I'm strangling you I'm strangling you. That's a really interesting question. Is there any I don't fencing? know right. at this point, but I think that that's one of the kind of ethical questions that comes up around how do you ring fence sexual activity in terms of power dynamics, pleasure, role-playing, fantasy, through to consent. And that's one thing I was, I was going to ask you, Judith. Obviously, you know, you were saying before that you feel the sort of university ethics standards are prohibitive for sort of getting research for certain groups. But once you're actually designing a technology and going through the process of thinking how it's, how it's going to function, like what... what ethical considerations are you making throughout that process and what sort of considerations do you think are important for, for anyone designing technology to make more broadly? Um, uh, you need a, what we would call in industrial design a multidisciplinary team. So you need a bunch of stakeholders, you need the person who's going to run the company and then they need potentially people who are going to be users um, and then potentially depending on how wide, like are you, is that a narrow group of users or is that a wider group? Um, if you're making something like a vibrator, are we forgetting about women over 50 who happen to have all the money and be the, probably potentially the biggest part of the market? Um, so the it, take if you know if that was being done just in a product design company with uh, with a, with a company and university research out of that, then all of that's quite easy to facilitate and having people come in and out as focus groups and all of that sort of stuff, hand out products, whatever. So that's the difference with the university level. What I've actually realised is to sort of circumvent that a little bit is to just push that those focus groups and that stuff back out to the company. So I initially tried to start to sort of do that and then it was just an ethics nightmare. So ethics form nightmare. Um, so then uh, – and then I said, well, what if, what if the company does it and not me? And they're like, oh, that's fine. They can do it. And then you can have access – to their, to their data. So I, I was like, okay, well, that's how to do it. I stay at arm's, arm's length. So just this sort of going back. But it's the same process of going back and forth and then what their focus groups are. Um, and in that, the, the engineer will want to know something different to the OT, to the industrial designer, to the marketing person, to the business owner, to the stakeholder. And again, it's taking in all of those all of those voices. And can I just say, from a really simplistic terms, a lot of sex toys are created not in that way, you use the term design. I wouldn't even use the term design. They're, somebody has an idea for a company. They find a factory in China. That factory goes, oh, we can produce X, Y, and Z. And, and then they'll say, oh, I'll have that in pink. 
And then it's really, it's the Chinese tooling engineer that designs the product, you know, not an actual industrial designer, let alone a multidisciplinary team of stakeholders, you know, that are mostly women. So, I mean, that's, that's why you get a lot of really, really poor sex toys. And I think as more uh, better companies come along um, and women, con- women consumers get that and that extra kind of advantage of, well, that company's giving me education and they're answering my emails and, you know, that thing's not noisy and it hasn't sort of, I haven't thrown it across the wall because it hasn't given me a- an orgasm. Those, hopefully those companies will become a more important, bigger part of the industry and the other stuff will sort of, well, hopefully, yeah. a little bit. Yeah, and, and I think this is part of why I wanted you, Lucy, to be to be on the panel today because obviously you are running one of these companies, and so I can kind of which can is kind the future of, can kind of speak speak to that obviously. <laughs> um, so, how do you think about that as someone that does own a company, and, and what considerations are you making as you move through through your processes yeah. with product? I mean, maybe if I even like, uh, I'll zoom out it and then zoom in, but like. Um, like, if we zoom out, like, um, with normal, our mission is, like, give everyone the information, confidence and tools to explore sexuality on their own terms. Um, and, like, practically how we, how our theory of change works is, like, um, you know, we think that it's going to be decades if it ever happens before um, our formal sex education um, gives us enough information about um, sexual health, pleasure, um, LGBTQ plus sex, um, navigating a lifetime of sexual dysfunctions, um, navigating relational issues, navigating things like libido and arousal, like all of the things that you that really matter to having fulfilling and enjoyable sexual experiences across a lifetime but are not taught in school. We're like, it's going to take decades for government to do that if it ever happens. We also know that people um, like uh, increasingly self-educate about sex digitally. Um, and, you know, the top ones are porn, pop culture, Dr. Google, social media, um, and friends and partners. Um, and so from that, from those kind of pieces of knowledge about, you know, this situation, we say, okay, um, like we're going to, um, like try and reinvent the way that um, people experience shopping in this category as consumers and bring it up to the standard that we experience when we have amazing experiences with Netflix, with Google or with Apple. Interestingly, like when, when we first briefed our designers, we were like, Apple meets ASOP, but Bunnings customer service. Uh, <laughs> and they were like, everyone's like, no Bunnings. And I was like, no, the Bunnings has to be in there. Um, as long as you don't get that the other way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like we were just like, but, so anyway, we we're like, okay, we want to like fix that p- part of the equation. Then we want to use as much of the sales as possible to fund free, inclusive, digitally available sex ed. And we're building a library of that. And like, that's how we do our work. Um, so when I think about like, okay, we're launching a new physical product, um, you're balance, balancing a series of considerations. And one of those is like, okay, um, you know, uh, how do we incorporate uh, the views of the people who are going to use this product and make sure that we're doing it expansively? So I think a lot of users, because this is such a stigmatized and taboo space, um, will struggle to um, like express, here's exactly the product I want. Um, and even will sometimes struggle to express, like here are all of the kind of, you know, limitations and the things that concern me or the, the problems I want to solve. And so you have to be really thoughtful in how you like design those conversations to get the right insights out of them without sort of anchoring too much to the present version of that product. 
Um, but we'll think about that and do um, pretty deep research around that. And we'll think a lot about values, beliefs, and attitudes, and how do you create not just a physical product, but content and education that wraps around it that makes someone feel comfortable um, jumping into that um, as well. So like for us, like my co-founder is a sex coach who um, spends all of her time educating about sex online. And that has always been a really important part of like, if we're going to launch a product, not just do we want to like redesign the aesthetic, but we actually want to also um, make sure that like, um, you know, lots of people feel comfortable engaging with it. And um, uh, that uh, like for us, that means actually like the majority of our users are using the sex toy for the first time. Um, uh, so yeah, those are considerations, but then there's some interesting trade-offs as well. Like, um, you know, uh, there are moments where we'll be trading off, like, um, do we want to launch a product that we know is going to make us, like, two to $5 million over the next year, which can help me fund, like, 20 new courses of free sex ed that will be available. And, like, right now, sex ed is consumed in 40 countries. We want that to be 200. Like, like how do we, like, thinking about, like, is this the right product or do we want to develop a smaller product that is, like, less likely to do, you know, those kinds of numbers, less likely to be able to cross-fund that mission, but really important to a group of people who are already, you know, like, marginalised in a number of ways when it comes to their experience of sexual wellness. And I think, like, the the way that we try and navigate those trade-offs is like very honestly and keeping ourselves very honest by like reorienting to that mission every time and just being like, okay, like, are we trying to do the best version of that mission? Like, how do we sequence these things in the right way to get the most of it as quickly as possible? But yeah, it's like hectic. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you a question about investment? Because um, obviously I've been looking at the sex toy industry for, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years or something now. And uh, so my thesis was based in that early part of the late 90s going through to the to sort of that first decade of the, the 21st century. And that's when there was a bunch of design-led companies that came up, you know, your Lilo's, your Jimmy Jane's, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, Golf Row was part of that. And um, you could tell when somebody went, so these great companies would start, and then suddenly you'd go, why the hell are they making that? And you go, oh, they've got investment. Oh, somebody from the adult, they've needed to scale up or they've needed money and then they've gone to some sort of quite typical, particularly America, like remember when poor Jimmy Jane, like they, they just like Cal Exotics got into them and then suddenly it was all, they literally bought out a range called The Usual Suspects and it was The <laughs> Usual Suspects. I was like, you're not even being ironic. Like it was, it was the, the, the rabbit vibrator and, you know, all the really silly stuff and mm. uh, that didn't, that, that, you know, never works. Um, so have you ever, somebody ever said, yeah, I'll give you, you know, a million bucks for it. I'll give you 500,000 <laughs> bucks to, but you've got to do this. Got to do X. And, co- and get, and compromise what you think I your think, vision is. Oh, I think like, um, I think literally every commercial investor um, and like this is their job, like their job is to be a steward of capital for the people who gave them that capital. Like literally every commercial investor will be like, okay, well, like if you can't show me in the short to medium term, like how this is the business strategy that gets you to this, like this place where, you know, you've grown it by this much, um, like uh, then it's just not a good deal for them. But I think what the important thing there is actually being like very thoughtful in like what investment you bring on and making sure that it's like values and mission aligned because otherwise, you know, you do end up in that place where like you've made a fair bit of revenue, but you haven't made the change that you want. And, you know, that like you get distracted very easily. So, yeah, like I think... Even that, like great yeah. companies like Damon stuff, though, some of the last stuff I've just gotten, they got and got investment and been forced to do something because it just sort of really, you know, moved away from what I thought that, that they, they, they core that they were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, Dame um, is really interesting. And for anyone who, who doesn't know it, like I, I think Dame are like 
an incredible example of this like wave of sexual wellness companies like they um you know MIT engineer and a sexologist um both of whom are female identifying got together um their first product was like a um a uh well, it was touted like, as a hands-free yeah but you've got to have hands to put it there so it's yeah, not technically it's hands-free. not that hands-free but it, it, it was a genuine <laughs> but when genuinely you get it like, there, it's hands-free you know like you know clitoral stimulation is really important for people with most people with vulvas to achieve an orgasm um like um this was making hands-free clit stimulation a reality for a lot more people or sort of like hands-free during the act of intercourse. And and, and partner sex too. Yeah, 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 exactly. But, you know, it it was genuine product innovation. Um, Yeah, and then to, like, launch that product, have launched a series of products since. Um, They are now, I think, the sex tech company that has raised the largest amount of money of any company in the world, um, which was seven million US dollars in the, um, the round that they just raised. Um, which is also like, by the way, not very big <laughs> compared to rounds. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, like I... Well, if you like, think of like Tesla as an example, mm. you know, and like sort of like raising enormous amounts of money off the back of an idea of starting an electric car company, you know, there's many vibrators out there in the world as cars. Okay, they're not quite the same <laughs> retail cost, but, you know, sort of it's a... And again, it goes back to that thing of culture, you know, and then that's you know because the most of most of the money in the world is well in that investment thing is men driving that, whereas on the consumer side it's women who have the it's you know it's well educated women at post fifties who have the money yeah to buy I, stuff definitely and I think like. I actually think this is probably a controversial opinion. I think that the label sex tech has sometimes done more harm than good, um, just because I like you know it's a sexy label and it like uh, it is literally sexy, but it's also like uh, like labeling something as tech brings it into the like the the um, line of sight of a, a suite of investors who'll do speculative high risk investment like venture capital and and their kind of equivalents. Um, and um, I think those people are often most interested in the things that are most heavy on the tech and less on the sex and intimacy or what will make the most difference for a large number of people. Like, um, it'll be interesting to see the future of sex robots, but, like, the number of times I'm asked about sex robots and I'm like, I will do much more good by getting vibrators in the hands of, like, you know, a a million Australians (laughs) than I ever will by, like, making a sex robot for, you know, 5,000 people who want to buy it. Um, it's not your target market. No, so no, so it's not no. target market. But I also think like that the tech label, like it's interesting because like with someone like Dame, like they've started bringing out a whole bunch of products that are about like creating recurring um, revenue. So like they've started bringing out things that are like desire gummies, which is and like it's a libido. A libido pill and there's a whole bunch of issues with the science of that but essentially like the literature is just not there for like the market that they're making it for it's like relatively irresponsible um and that's I think like like a direct result of like the preferences of that suite of investors who are like we're used to investing in recurring revenue SaaS products <laughs> and like we wanted this to business to look like that so I sometimes wonder if just being like these are like good consumer businesses they don't have to be tech businesses might actually do a lot more good and that's where the problem with university level research, where you want, you know, you want people like me and uh, Jenny to do projects where we might be measuring what actually is sexual pleasure for women, what kind of pleasure do women want, you know, what kind of sensations do women want to experience. There's nothing like that out there in the public domain. Dame might have done their own version of it. You might have done your own version of it. It stays as sort of proprietary information for that company. So it's not out there on a kind of like a public database that university students could pick up, run with, or somebody else can start a company with. So there is that, there's that lack of progress, 
Um, and like that's, you know, like in biomedical science, you know, that would be something that generally belongs yeah. in the academy and then gets like, you know, brought into the world of business to help scale it. But yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Having here. So then, <laughs> on that, that's the taboo. we're that's, very that's passionate the, about this. The taboos around <laughs> sex and the issues with ethics inside universities yeah. in being able to do that sort of experimentation. Yeah. Oh, you know, um, uh, research. I call it research. So then, across <clears> your <throat> sort of respective industries, for each of you, I'd be interested to get each of your take on this. Where do you sort of? ideally hope that things will move and directionally what changes would you like to see in the industry as a whole? Uh, for me, I'd like to see a lot more uh, collaboration between re research and, and industry. So, and, but that probably, you know, if you think about it, I'm probably quite unique in the world in terms of industrial female industrial designer that understands sex toy design. Um, and then there's not that many great companies still out there. So um, that sort of collaboration, uh, you know, needs to kind of uh, con continue to happen. Um, I would love to see more in that disability space. I would love to see more in the menopausal space. You know, I think that's a huge market um, that's, that's untapped. Um, uh, I think I'd like to see, you know, um, uh, these women-led companies grow you know, for the women that want to consume sex toys, we're not going to have control over that end of the market, which is the, the, the sex robots and all of that sort of stuff. But that will remain a pretty, a pretty niche, a pretty niche kind of market. So, yeah, I think second all of that. <laughs> um, I think uh, certainly like um, much higher quality and richer um, like uh, data would actually be really helpful. Um, so we like, we literally run um, like an equivalent of the census, like which we like uh, pay for it normal. It, it has no business benefit <laughs> um, called the big sex survey each year where we like um, do like my, my background is social science research, um, but we do like demographically representative research with a large enough sample of Australians to make like conclusions because we're like the ABS doesn't ask these questions. Um, and like uh, a lot of companies will survey their own users and be like 99% of people love vibrators and you're like well that's not like very good data <laughs> so like you know like I would love to see um, a much more solid research agenda around the, so many of these topics um, like getting high quality data sets that are longitudinal um, like research particularly around as you say sort of disability around menopause um, I think around like a lot of the missing physical science and anatomy like there's so much there to do so I think that'd be amazing um I think in the industry uh yeah like the you know if if you ask any like sex tech entrepreneur like what are your biggest blockers it's like um I can't advertise um on a bunch of platforms which just slows us down like um like you can get there but the difference between um like uh, it takes 20 times more effort and it takes 20 times as long um, and access to capital. So a lot of like, venture capital funds have a vice clause built into their agreement with their investors, which will essentially say like we can't invest in tobacco, guns, gambling or sex, um, which, you know, is something where like there was a basis for that once upon a time, but has not been updated for this space. Um, 
So you'll even get really interesting like dynamics where like um, if you're a health tech company that's providing access to pills like Viagra, like that's very fine. But if you're a company that's solving orgasms for people with vulvas with like sex toys, not okay. So there's some really interesting like weird double standards that can come through that. And I'd love to see like honestly just like um, access to capital, access to public spaces to talk to people. Um, like those are the two biggest accelerants that would actually really help. Yeah. That's a really great summary in terms of, I guess, I mean, I echo exactly what the two of you have just said. I think it's just widening our perspective to what kinds of sexual technologies are required, desired, um, the significance of female pleasure um, or vulva-focused pleasure, um, and also just disinhibiting the kind of mechanisms that are uh, getting in the way at the moment in terms of the market expectations of what, like the, the focus on profitability, the kinds of support um, that is there for um, sexual device um, startups and the opportunities for us as researchers to bring in a wider range of perspectives as well. Good. So at this point, we're going to open up for some questions. Um, Lewis is running around with a microphone. Um, I know that the section always makes people uncomfortable in case no one has a question. So I've made sure that the panelists have come with questions for each other in the event that none of you have <laughs> questions, but we will prioritise your questions. So just pop your hand up if you have one. I asked my question. I got it. I, got it. Oh, no, I like to get prepared and get in it. I have to think I'm sure I'll have more yeah. time. I also, oh yeah, sorry. Go on. Does anyone have questions yeah. that they would like to ask? We run a lot of workshops as well. And one of the things that I always want to say is like, I think sometimes it can be very, um, if you're not used to speaking about sex all day long as your job, it can be, feel very revealing and edgy to be like, oh, I'm asking a question about sex. What does it say about me? And I just want to emphasize that like, that's okay. Important um, point. And this is like, yeah, a, a great space in which to ask it. Saying that I came late, so I was hoping for a summary of the artificial intelligence and the bots conversation that you had in terms of what's available out on the... It, ra it ranges everything from you can get a life-size humanoid-type uh, <laughs> robot that makes noises and moves and squeaks that sort of has a personality through to, if you can't afford that or lift it, then you can get a, an AI chatbot on your phone and pair that with a, with a sexual device. Uh, what else is in between? What else is, would be AI-enabled? I, there, there was a lot of like there was a fad a few years ago around around um, and and this is one of my criticisms of the industry. Um, so new tech comes and you know then you know you have a, a company like um, WeVibe for instance who in its day was very innovative, and then they got in big trouble because then they kind of hooked it up to a sort of an app and then they. This is like the long distance sex toy. Yeah, started harvesting everybody's data and then they got sued. And wasn't the reason they, they kind of ended up selling their company. But, but uh, you know, um, what was my point? Lost it. In between, in between zone, but it's in between. There's often a lot of devices that are marketed oh, as being AI kind of smart. focused on it or smart that yeah. actually are basically just collecting data and then very poorly presenting that data back to the user, but expertly presenting that data back to the. Company. And you don't you don't necessarily need an app hooked no. up to your vibrator. That was my point. Yeah. Like my mm. point is just make a decent bloody vibrator, yeah. will you? Like you know, like <laughs> like do that first and then maybe go from there. And I have had students do great honest projects. Um, one of them was in the Victorian 
premieres award. Shout out to Cara. Good work. And uh, and then halfway through she was like, oh, and then I've got to do an app. And I was like, why? <laughs> and then she's like, oh, because don't I have to have an app? And I'm like, yeah, but wh- like why? There's that thing of like why do you need an app? You know, why? why? What? How would that help? So mm. how does AI make something better, particularly a physical product? So you've got to keep asking. As, a desi- as an industrial designer, you keep asking yourself, well, why? And I think like even in, you know, conversations with our community, like um, like uh, we have never heard someone ask for, for an app. For an app. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that like, you know, if you go to any like sex toy website, read the reviews, which is always a really great way to figure out what product to make because you just look for the negative reviews um, and the things that people don't like. Um, and uh, that's a really good reverse engineer oh, kind of idea, isn't it? Yeah, and like for all the, the shit stuff and then make it better. The biggest thing is like I felt awkward. Sorry, the single biggest one is it made too much noise. Um, the second biggest one tends to be like it, I was embarrassed to bring it out or I didn't feel comfortable using it or I didn't. And then like the third one is like I didn't know how to use it. Yeah. Like I just haven't learned this anatomy and I didn't, no one's showing me and I'm just sitting there with this thing like unable to interact with it and those are not none of those are problems that are solved by an app like um like those are problems of like human intimacy and you're already asking someone to expand their boundaries like most people don't actually really have a strong desire to bring an app into partnered sex and, and solved by good yep. product design yeah. yeah I think the other core design question as well is a lot of these apps are designed to collect data, but the question is to be like, what purpose is that data for? How is that benefiting the user? Is it necessary to collect that to data? To track your orgasm yeah. going like that. Because a lot of our smart devices are tracking a whole excess of data that is almost irrelevant to the, the productiveness of the device. Yeah. And, is, and that's presumably all being driven by the company and, and Absolutely. their insights. I think right. a lot of it was a gimmick. So this is going back maybe 10 years ago as apps started to develop. And then when I actually did that disability project and, you know, there was a problem with... Ha- ha- so this is where things like apps and other things come into really good play because we made a prototype and there's one ethics application we actually put through that we, like, tested it on one of our person that we had. And then... Uh, and then... So... She was like, well, I can't use the buttons, right? Because that's another, that's probably number four yeah. on your list. Where's yeah. the buttons and how to, you know, I can't see them. Or like it stops, it, yeah, it, it loses not charge. In their heads. Yeah. Loses charge at the wrong moment is a yeah. classic. Yeah. Uh. And then, so poor hand dexterity, I can't use the buttons. So then I'm like, okay, right, I'll get a sex toy that's with an app and then we'll, well, I'll hook it on her bed and we'll have, a, we'll have an iPad there. And then the app was so poorly designed that it was worse than the buttons. I'm like, how can you design an app that poorly? Like, it was so poorly designed. It was, it was, I'm just like, if you're going to go to all that trouble, well, maybe they didn't go to that trouble. So that, and so that's a, that's a problem too. So it's just big part of the industry, whatever they do, they don't actually do particularly well. And the next tech is just a gimmick. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that that just comes back to a lot of what we've been talking about today around the intentionality around the development of these things and when it's not being driven by the right motives, then you're inevitably not going to have a very good outcome or a very usable outcome that serves a real purpose or solves a real problem for people. The same the same conversations that you'd have about sex tech and how to design something well with sex tech, you have about all, all sectors of health. Like, you know, like uh, when we're sitting at university and we're talking about other problems like Parkinson's or dementia or that sort of stuff, um, it's it, best practice is now the same thing, multidisciplinary teams, you know, and looking and, and bef- as you develop the tech right at the beginning, bringing in the designers and the social scientists and looking at the stakeholders and the users, maybe what the service model is, 
you know, and having that running as a dual kind of project alongside the tech, I think that's what best best practice is. Or they weave, they sort of weave at different points. Um, and the engineers still do what they do and the designers still do what they do. But it's, a, so, but it's about bringing everybody's expertise to the table, having really interesting uh, conversations and uh, analysis. Yeah, that feels like a pretty good point to, to start to wrap up. Did any of you three have burning questions for any of the other panellists that you I wanted to put to each other? I jumped in right early on and asked mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, have a, I have a backup, but it's not so burning that it like, has to get asked. Okay, so. Well, you, you've got a course to go teach, so we'll, we'll <laughs> let you go. But um, thank you for coming, everyone. It was lovely to have you all here at M Pavilion. Um, for those of you that came in late, I'm Caroline Morrow-Hammond. I'm the host of the Philosophy of Sex podcast. This episode has been recorded through our mics and it'll be going up uh, sometime in the next few weeks. So if you have a burning desire to listen to it again for some bizarre reason, then it will be accessible to you. Um, but yes, thank you so much to all of our panellists. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having and, us. Uh, and great. Thanks, Caroline, as well, for doing yes. great moderating. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And a huge thank you to our panellists, Judith, Lucy and Jenny. You can find more information about M Pavilion and our guests today in the show notes. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fetcho for editing this episode and writing the music. If you like what you're hearing or have a question, please leave us a review or email us at info at becoming.me. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.